What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Oasis Podcast. If you're in the Knoxville, Tennessee area, we'd love to meet you face-to-face on a Wednesday night at our main Park West campus. Make sure to check us out on social media at Oasis PWC to stay up to date on everything going on here so that you can get plugged in and join the Oasis family. I hope that you enjoy this week's message. Let's jump in. So I'm ready to preach the word of God. Amen. Go ahead and turn to first Peter for me. I'm going to be in first Peter. We have been for the last few weeks. um, We've been talking about hope. We have been discussing um, this, this statement that God really put on my heart that the world doesn't need any more opinions right now. It just needs hope. If you want an opinion, you can turn on the news. It, just turn on whatever channel you know, floats your boat. You'll get the opinion that you want. You can turn on social media. You can go. Whatever. We've got enough opinions. What we need right now is hope to get us through the craziness of what's happening, to celebrate and to have joy in the midst of what's happening tonight. I want to talk about joy. Sermon title for tonight is simply just joy. Because I believe that joy is such a vital characteristic in hope. It's kind of hard to have hope for what's coming tomorrow if you've been stuck in this just depressive state for a hot minute. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you're not going to shout me down with that one, but at least give me a head nod like, yeah, pastor, I hear you. Okay. Amen. (laughs) We need joy tonight. So I hope tonight that... um, that you are encouraged to be in the house of the Lord, to be in the presence of the Lord. I hope that everyone in the room, including myself, walks out of here with a little bit more joy and a little bit of encouragement simply because God is really just that good. Amen? First Peter, holler at me if you're there. If not, she's probably gonna flip to it on the screen. So she'll flip to it on the screen and then you say, hey, I got it. Say, hey, I got it. There it is. First Peter chapter one, verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Everybody say joy. Joy. No, like you mean it. Say joy. joy. There it is. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for who you are. Genuinely, thank you for all that you are, for all that you've done, for all that you currently are doing. God, the things that we don't even see behind the scenes, we just honor you and we thank you for who you are. And tonight, I ask, Father God, that you would speak through me, that your word would do what you send it forth to do. God, that you would have your way in this house. Again, Jesus, you are Lord over this space. Be glorified here, be honored here. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, since we're talking about joy, I've got a couple more dad jokes for you tonight. On another note, I kid you not, this morning I was having a meeting with Pastor Jeremy, our senior pastor here at the church, and it was like one of those impromptu meetings where we just sit and talk and don't get anything done. It was one of those meetings. I walked into his office and I sat down for a second and like 25 minutes into talking, I realized that he has this book on his desk that literally just says dad jokes on it. I don't know if he's going to start telling dad jokes on Sunday mornings or not, but man, I hope he does. And if he does, just humor him because it'll be so worth it. But a couple dad jokes to get you started for tonight. If, um, if Mary was the mother of Jesus and, and Jesus is the spotless lamb of God, does that mean that Mary had a little lamb? <laughs> wow. Wow. Man. Wow. All right, one more. This is my favorite one. Wow. This is my favorite one. What do you call pastors... In Germany, what do you call pastors in Germany? 
German shepherds. Oh, oh, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. <laughs> joy. Go ahead, smile a little bit. Have some joy tonight. Have some joy tonight. I believe that God is genuinely, totally, completely okay and for joy. Amen? Amen? I'm troubled right now in my own life and uh, in, in society and Christendom with the lack of joy. That we are just so distraught and so heavy and, and toxic. Can I call it out? Just toxic right now. It is hard to come e even to, to come together for a church service sometimes. And we get together and the first thing out of our mouth is, man, I went through this and this was crazy. And, this, oh, and I'm just so glad to be in the house of the Lord. Like, I get that. That's fine. Life is real. Things happen. I totally understand. But some, even coming together for church right now can feel like such a just, oh, thank God I made it to Wednesday. <laughs> and I understand that. But I believe that God has more than that in store for us tonight. Where has joy gone in the church? And more importantly than that, where can we find it? <laughs> How can we get it back? Tonight, I want to give you a couple things that I believe... Um, are, are just truths and, and key points for us to find some joy in our lives again. Amen. Say it like, like you mean it like, yeah, you know what? I'd love to wake up tomorrow with a little bit more joy than I did this morning. Amen. All right, turn to Luke chapter two. The context for, what, for what's happening here in Luke chapter two, you're gonna hear it a lot around December time. This is where Jesus is born. This is the story of Jesus' birth. And we, we don't really talk about it a whole lot outside of the Christmas season. We all get together and we drink hot chocolate and we read the baby Jesus story, right? Like that's how it goes. But outside of that, we don't really spend a whole lot of time talking about this moment in history, this story in history. And I want to even clarify, sometimes when I hear the word story, I think... Um, fiction. I think of something that just like it may have happened. It feels good to talk about. It's the Christmas story. It's whatever. No, you can go back for, for those of you that are in the room that are trying to figure out this Christianity thing. You can go back and look at history books that had nothing to do with this one. And you can confirm that a lot of the things we're about to read were really happening at these times in history. The opening verse of this passage that we're going to read tonight talks about how the leader of this time called for this census to come out over all the land. And you can go find other historical readings that confirm that this is what happened. You can find stories and talk of this Jesus guy through other historical references separate from the Bible itself. So when I say we're going to read the story of Jesus' birth, I literally mean the historical monumental moment that the Savior of the world entered into our world. Starting in verse 1 of Luke chapter 2, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Again, can't you just feel Christmas? Can't you just feel the warm blanket? Yes, God, it's coming soon, church. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, 
keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior is born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the entry point of the Christian faith. That at this moment in history, God sent his only son to be present, (laughs) to be born to a virgin. All the crazy things that we really do believe. And let me remind you, we really do believe. And I know that sometimes we don't don't talk about it a lot. We we come into church circles and we, we talk about how Jesus can make life better and how he's your comforter through all these moments. But at the core of our faith, we're crazy people. We genuinely believe that God sent his only son to be born to a virgin, to live a sinless life, to die a brutal death, to save your soul, to save my soul, to transform everything. I, wanna, I don't want to miss verse 10. It says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. Everybody say good news. Good news. One more time. Good news. Good news that will cause great joy. Everybody say great joy. Amen. My goodness. For all the people. You see, it's not just good news. It's not even just like okay news. Like this is the news. This is the greatest news in the history of the world. And it won't just cause okay joy. This will cause great joy. This is the turning point of humanity where the long prophesied Messiah has shown up in a way that nobody was quite prepared for and entered into all humanity. The the word gospel, Pastor Melvin's in the back of the room, he'll get a kick out of me trying to pronounce this. The word gospel comes from this this Latin word, evangelion. Yeah, I doubt that that's not how you say that. Hey, all right. But basically, the translation for this word is literally good news, or even to preach. It's where we get our word evangelism. So literally to do the act of evangelism is to tell the good news. Anything short of that is not evangelism. Anything short of the good news, the great news, the life-changing news is not the gospel. In definition, the gospel is good news. Judah Smith in the book Jesus Is, he says this about it. He says, in other words, the gospel is by nature good news. Gospel and good news are synonyms. The gospel is not bad news. It's not threatening news. It's not hellfire and brimstone news. It's good news, great news, over the moon news. You cannot separate, man, listen to this. You cannot separate joy from the gospel. Joy is built into the very definition of the gospel. They are literally the same word. The answer to your happiness problem is not taking a vacation, reading a joke book, getting a nap, or listening to a comedian. The answer to your joy problem is the gospel. Man, we could just close this shop and pray and get out of here in that one moment. The answer to your joy problem is not getting out of the crazy class that you're in right now. Sorry. The answer to your joy problem is not getting that crazy ex to stop blowing your phone up, although it wouldn't hurt. 
the answer to your joy problem. <laughs> the answer to your joy problem is not just moving some pieces and some things around. It's not just getting some new clothes. It literally, in its simplest form, the answer to your joy problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I wonder how in the world have we become so numb to the thing that should bring the most joy? How have we become so numb to this story that is literally the, the turning point in history? And we come to that youth retreat and we feel the goosebumps and we get saved and that's awesome. Yes, praise God for that. And there's this radical moment that takes place. But then somehow or another along the road, we just get so blinded to the whole thing. And we sit down in this toxic, depressed nastiness when the joy of the world that should bring great joy, said the angel himself to the, the shepherds. How do we become so numb to that? A couple weeks ago, last time I preached to you, we looked at Luke chapter 15. It's where Jesus teaches these three parables about the lost things, right? He starts with the lost sheep. There's a shepherd that's out in the field and he has a hundred sheep. One of them wanders off. So Jesus or the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. He brings the sheep back. And the Bible says that he gets his friends together and they rejoice because they found the lost sheep. And then the second story, the second parable that Jesus tells them, there's this dude that has lost a coin. And like everybody in the room, when you lose your money, you go find your money. He starts looking for it. He finds the coin. And the Bible again says that once he finds it, he gets his family together. He gets the group together and he rejoices. Then the third parable comes along and it's the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. The boy goes haywire, completely up and leaves and then eventually he starts coming back and when he gets back, the father throws this massive rager of a party in celebration because his son has come home. And this week as I was preparing for this message, looking back at that past one, I was so overwhelmed with the term rejoice. And I know that seems just so simple, but the literal definition for the word rejoice is to feel or show great joy or delight. So when I picture rejoicing, I'm throwing a party. Like that's where my head is. We won the game. We're rejoicing. However, my Rockets didn't win the game and I'm still healing, but we're going to get there. But we won the game. The moment happened. The victory is here and we're going to rejoice, right? We're going to throw a party. But in reality, the definition of the word rejoice is more like just being so filled with joy that you can't help but die. It just happens. There's this moment where this party just takes place. There's this expression of a smile. There's this happiness. This thing happens because there's so much joy. It just, oh, I can't do anything with it. I'm just so happy. And you just rejoice. It just happens. The Bible says that when someone gets saved, heaven rejoices. There's this moment when somebody comes and says, you know what, this is it. Like the Bible says, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe it with your heart and you are saved. You, your eternal life in heaven with Jesus because of this moment between you and him, this salvation moment, and heaven literally rejoices. And again, look at that definition. It's so beautiful. It's not just like this bell goes off and everybody just goes, oh, another salvation. And like a dance break, like it's not like that. There's so much joy that takes place when somebody gets saved that it causes this party to happen. It causes this moment of, oh, this is happening. 
it's happening and I'm so happy, I'm so joyful, I can't help it that there is this moment of celebration. There's this moment of rejoicing. So again, I ask, how in the world have we got so used to this thing that if, if the angels, when somebody gets saved, they just, it's like they can't even just, ah, I can't do anything with this. I might as well throw a party. <laughs> like there's just so much joy that you rejoice. How do we get back to an understanding and a joy in what has happened in your life in the truth that simply Jesus was born and he died for you and that is more than enough to keep you satisfied and joyful for the rest of your life. How do we flip the glasses, right? How do you get some new prescription and see this thing a little bit different than we do right now? I want to turn to Psalm chapter 51. I want to turn to Psalm chapter 51 and I'm going to give you a crazy amount of story context here. And uh, just a heads up, it literally sounds like a bad ABC family TV show from like 10 years ago. And some of you are like, God, don't go there, Caleb, because you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> But this is one of the crazier stories in the Bible, in my opinion. Back in the book of 2 Samuel, and I'll go ahead and go to Psalm 51. I'm just going to give you the, the Caleb translation of this crazy story. But back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is king. And many of you know about David. He, he slayed Goliath with the stone, right? He's that David that you learned about in kids' church years and years ago. He's grown up and the calling that God has put on his life has come to pass. And now he is king. Well, this, this story plays out where they go back to war, which David was a warrior. He was a mighty man, but he just decides to stay home. And that is homeboy's first mistake. While he's at home, while his men are out fighting, he sees this lady next door go out on her roof to bathe. Now, apparently that was just a thing back then, 2020. Hopefully that doesn't happen very often. But this lady goes out and she's bathing on her roof and he is the king. He is in charge. And he abuses that power. So this woman named Bathsheba, he calls her, he tells the servants to go get her and bring her to the house. And as you can imagine, the bad ABC family TV show just goes downhill from there. He sleeps with the woman and manages to get her pregnant while her husband is in the army fighting the war that he should have been there fighting in the first place. I'm telling you, this is one of the craziest stories. This is David that the Bible says is a man after God's own heart. And he gets himself in the craziest situation. So this is where it almost feels like a, a weird Disney Channel vibe from where he tries to fix it from this point out. Sorry, we've been watching a lot of like Zach and Cody right now. And I'm just picturing that like playing out. Anyway, so David realizes what he's done. There's a situation that he's got here and he tries to cover the whole thing up. So he tells his servants to go get this man, Uriah, the husband from the army and to bring him back into the city. David calls him up and he tells him, I'm proud of what you're doing. You're doing so great. Gives him a pat on the back and he says, I want you to take a couple days and go spend some time with your wife. Spend some time with your wife, please. We'll cover this whole thing up. And then you can go back and you can finish the war and whatever. Well, David hears that Uriah didn't go home he just disappeared because he's so good of a man that when David calls him back in, he says, it's not right for me to go home and just rest and relax with my wife while my friends, my brothers are fighting on the front lines. So what kind of man would I be to do that? So now David's like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So he just cooks up another plan. He says, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to get him drunk. So he tries that option. 
He brings him in and he gives him a lot to drink. And again, he tries to send him home and still he won't go home. So there's no way to cover this mess up. David has got Bathsheba pregnant and this whole mess is unfolding (laughs) to be continued. No, sorry. So then the whole mess is unfolding. And what he does from this point on is his last hope effort to cover this thing out. He says, okay, I'm going to send him to the very front lines of the war and have our people adjust a little bit and make sure that he dies and we'll cover the whole thing up. I'm telling you, 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can go read it for yourself because it is one wild roller coaster of a story. Well, that's exactly what happens. They send Uriah to the war. He goes out in the front lines. King David hears that he's killed. And then the Bible says that David gives them some time to mourn. The, the dedicated time for mourning goes by. And then he goes and he brings Bathsheba into the kingdom as one of his wives. And she eventually gives birth to the child. Things go downhill from there. The, the child is born but doesn't live. And there's just this crazy situation that's unfolded. Now, in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, There's a prophet that, if you've read the Old Testament, what the prophet's job was basically kind of like the pastor of that time, but on a whole other level. They would hear from God on behalf of the people and vice versa. They would talk to God on behalf of the people and they were the the telephone, so to speak, between the people and God. Well, God speaks to this prophet Nathan and he tells him what's happened and he sends him to go meet with David. So Nathan shows up and he starts telling King David this story. He says, so say... Uh, say there's these two men and one of them is really rich and the other is really poor. And David's like, okay, so, yeah, okay. So the, the rich guy has got all of this land, multiple wives, all the, the animals he could ever need. And of course he's crazy wealthy. Well, he decides to throw a party and he's going to have some guests come over. Well, the poor man has very few things. In fact, the only animal that he owns is this one little lamb. And because they only have the one lamb, they basically have raised it as if it was one of their pets. They've kept it with them as one of the family. Well, the wealthy man is too greedy and he doesn't want to use one of his own animals to feed his guests for the party. So he goes and he takes the poor man's only lamb and he slaughters it and he feeds it to the people. And King David is like, Mwah! are you kidding me? Kill him. Literally, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, he says, surely I swear to you this guy will die before this is over. We're going to deal with this. And Nathan goes, bro, you ding dong, it's you. You're the guy. You did this. You're literally the king. You have everything you could ever need. And in one dumb decision and then multiple dumb decisions to try to cover it up, you took this entire man's world and had him killed. And David had him a real serious come to Jesus meeting with prophet Nathan. So the reason that I wanted you to turn to Psalm chapter 51 is what we don't always realize is in the Psalms, you're hearing a couple different authors write these prayers, right? Well, what's happening in Psalm chapter 51 is David is writing a prayer to God right after Nathan has come and called him out for his mess. So he is just, this is fresh for him. He is realizing the mess that he's made and the hole that he's dug himself in. And he turns to God and he prays this prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done 
what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict to justify and, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy. Everybody say joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He has made an overwhelming mess. The God that put him in that position as king kept him alive through a couple really crazy situations in the Old Testament. He has directly disobeyed and made a mockery of what God has called him to do and who God has called him to be. And this prayer is such a beautiful painting, like portrayal of, of, of what's going on in his head. And I do not want to miss where he lands. He starts with this, God, I've messed up and you are so right to call me out, right? It's a father-son conversation. Yeah, I jacked this up. I'm aware and I've really made a mess. And you are so right to judge me on this. You are so right to help me figure this out, God. But if you cleanse me, if you will choose to cleanse me and restore me, I can be white as snow again. I can't tell you how many times I've prayed that prayer. God, yup, I'm an idiot. I, I, oh, oh. I can't believe that I got myself here. I can't believe that I put myself in this position. But if you choose to, God, if I can just receive that grace again, the blood of Jesus can wash me white as snow and we can move forward and you and me can feel. It's not grace to, and, and permission to just be an idiot and to make crazy decisions, but it's this ongoing relationship. But here's the part that I really want to lean into. At the end of the prayer, he says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And here's what I believe David is saying right now. He's going, God, you're right. I made a mess of this. I see all the great things that you've done for me. I see how far you've brought me. I see the calling that you've placed on my life. And I'm well aware that I have messed this up. The reality is I wasn't satisfied anymore. And I went looking for joy in the wrong places. So if you can restore to me the joy, simply in the salvation that you've given me, I can move forward and not make the same mistakes again. I genuinely believe that one of the reasons that the Bible continues to refer to David as a man after God's own heart, even in the midst of these crazy things, is because of prayers like that. A willingness to say, oh man, yeah, I did mess this up. And if you'll help me get back on the right track, I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm not going to go back down that road again. I'm not going to get myself caught in this whole situation. The reality is I'm not paying enough attention to how good you've been to me. And I blocked all of that out over time like everybody else does. Numb to the goodness of God to the power of the gospel that set you free in the first place. And because of that, I wasn't happy anymore. I, I wasn't joyful anymore. And I just thought I'd, I, you know, 
I gave in to the temptation. I made that choice. I made that decision. See, Pastor Jeremy talks about his time in seminary. And one of the things that he will tell you, and if you've been, if you've been here on Sunday mornings for a long time, you've probably heard him say it because it's deep down in his doctrine for what it looks like to do a relationship life with Jesus. He'll say, no, be, do. And what he means by that is if you really know who God is, if you really have this thing happening, this relationship, this understanding, I don't just mean like you've heard about it, but you know, like you know. If you know, then what happens is it causes you to become different. You want to do different. You want to live different. Because like I said, it's a rejoicing. It just happens. You're filled with so much joy in what's taking place that you can't really help but act different. And then you do the right things and you don't do the wrong things. A lot of times in Christianity, especially from a leadership standpoint, pastors like myself can look at a, look at a symptom and try to say, yeah, don't do that. The Bible says not to do that. But nine times out of 10, the closer you get to God, the more you know God, the more these things just figure themselves out because it's not just behavior modification. It's legitimate life transformation because you don't want to make those decisions anymore. You don't want to do those things anymore because you're so filled with joy simply because he loved you enough to save you. And all of a sudden, looking at porn don't feel the same anymore. Preach, preacher. I will. All of a sudden, having those conversations with people you know you shouldn't isn't as attractive anymore. Those decisions, those addictions, those things, instead of just being this like temptation that's right here, like Bathsheba's situation was for David, you're thinking about how blessed you are that you don't have to go to hell. There's this understanding, this realization that what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you, beats anything else you could ever gain. Ever. Ever. So honest confession, I need more joy too. I need more joy. I've been stuck in this COVID mess like everybody else. I had to quarantine too. My work got impacted by all of this. Everything's been different this year. Everything's been weird this year. We've had ups and downs. We've been sick a lot. We've been through some things. I need more joy too. We need more joy. Amen. So let me ask you these three questions. Does the gospel bring you joy? Like really, take a moment in your own heart and mind. Does the gospel bring you joy? Does your salvation bring you joy? Do you know the good news? Do you know the good news? Again, not like have you heard a pastor preach it to you before, but have you experienced what it feels like to know that you have been eternally set free from damnation. Again, that's, the, that's one, millennials don't use that word a lot. Like, let's be real. But that's the reality of what we believe. The greatest news of all time, the answer to the happiness issue is joy simply because you've been set free. 
And I'm not saying that Christianity is all lollipops and gummy bears. You go look at what happened to a lot of the early disciples. They were martyred. But the apostle Paul says that he has learned the secret to being satisfied and content, whether he was in lack or he had more than enough. I'm not just talking about like happiness, right? Like just, oh, this, the sunshine is so great today, which it was. Thank you, Lord. But genuine joy, life-changing joy. Will you stand with me tonight? I believe that there is a joy that goes beyond pretty weather and happy thoughts, but it's only found in Jesus. So is our focus on the momentary or on the eternal? Are we looking right now at what we're walking through and some of the things that are going on, or are we able to step back for a minute, get away from this magnified view and come back out here and realize that Jesus is still alive. He is still the savior of the world that was born to a virgin that lived a sinless life that died for you so that you could have eternity with him. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the good news. The good news, the great news, the best news. So with eyes closed, here's what I wanna ask of you tonight. If you would be honest enough to say, pastor, bro, whatever you want to call me, I don't have enough joy right now, and this has been hard lately. Will you throw a hand up for me? Yeah, I know, I know, guys. Probably 70% of the room. You can put your hands down. If, if you're in the room and you say, um, Either I, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I don't know that I ever really understood the weight of what had happened, and I want the joy of my salvation, or I have never really received that salvation. And you're talking a lot about this joy from being saved, and I'm not sure that I ever really experienced that. If that's you, would you throw a hand up for me? Okay. Amen. Amen. I see those hands. I see those hands. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Mm. God, I just thank you so much. I thank you so much for what you did for me. I know it's quiet and it's awkward. Let it happen. Because this is real. This is real. There was a perfect man that was whipped and beaten and bruised and hung on a cross because he loved you and loves you so much. Oh God, forgive us for losing sight of that. Forgive us for thinking that if, if we had that car, those shoes, that life, that spouse, that job, that degree, that whatever, that we'd just be joyful and everything would be better. When in reality, what you have done is more than enough. You are more than enough, Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you are more than enough. So I repent in my own walk, in my own life, 
for losing sight of that. And like King David, I ask God, restore the joy of my salvation. For those of you tonight that said, that's me, I don't know that I've ever really received this thing. I don't want you to just repeat a, a prayer after me. This is between you and God. This is not just checking a, a box on a religion thing. This is about you and Jesus. So in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own way, right now in this moment, just acknowledge, man, I need you, Jesus. There were about five of you in the room, so you're not alone. Man, I need you, Jesus. And I, I believe that you died for me, and I want to believe it even more than I do. So help my unbelief. And God, for those of us in this room that have just become so stinking distracted by all the stuff, God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. And thank you that we will know who you are, become different, and do the right things as a consequence to the rejoicing that just happens. God, I love you. We love you. And we thank you tonight for joy unspeakable and full of glory. As this passage said, though we don't see you literally with our eyes, everybody in the room can feel your presence even right now. Though we have not seen you, we believe in you and we are filled with an inexplainable and glorious joy. So God, pour it out tonight over these individuals that they would be a light shining in a broken world right now that everywhere they go, people would realize that there is something weird about these people. There is joy in these people and they need some of that. God, I ask that you would pour out an anointing and a refreshing of your spirit, that physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and financially, these people would be blessed and highly favored as your children. God, I love you. We thank you. We praise you and we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.